And once again, good morning. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 8? You knew thus, we want to say hi, welcome you, it's good to see you. And uh, we are, to let you know, we are working our way through John's Gospel here at Calvary on Sunday morning. And uh, this morning we find ourselves studying John chapter 8. And uh, last week we um, ended with verses 31 and 2. I'd like to revisit those. So in John 8, verse 31, it says, Then Jesus said to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Jesus' statement begs the question, make us free in what way? Or make us free from what? Listen, as we said to close last week's message, Knowing how the truth of God sets a believer free is critical to victory. And guys, victory is the birthright of every child of God. And not that you just be a little victorious, but that you be more than a conqueror. That's our birthright. The Christian life is all about being set free from the old life of sin, to serve God in the newness of the Spirit. Paul said in Galatians 5, verse 1, for freedom... Christ has set us free. That's the goal. For freedom, Christ has set us free. And so I've entitled this little two-part mini-series, which is taking place in the larger context of John 8, the study we've been doing, which we've called The Light of the World. I've entitled this uh, little two-part series, True Freedom. True Freedom. It has just two parts. We'll do the first one this week, and the, the next uh, point we'll look at next week. Today we're going to look at understanding slavery, and next week, understanding victory. So understanding slavery, I think it would be better, uh, help us to better understand the impact of Jesus' words in verse 32, uh, the impact those words would have had on those in the crowd that day, if we start with a little cultural background. In the first century Greco-Roman world, slavery was just a very big part of their everyday life. In fact, it has been estimated that more than half the people you'd see on the streets of some of the great cities of the Roman Empire back then were slaves. These were people without rights, mere property. And they existed only for the comfort, convenience, and pleasure of their owners. And as you can imagine, the life of a slave was often hard, hopeless, and downright miserable. They were bought and sold like tools or animals and discarded by their owners just as quickly. I pulled a couple of quotes from this period to give you a flavor of how people felt about slaves back then. The Roman statesman Cato said, and I quote, Old slaves should be thrown on a dump, and when, they, and when a slave is ill, do not feed him anything. It is not worth your money. Take sick slaves and throw them away because they are nothing but inefficient tools, end quote. Another said, another wrote of a slave owner whose greatest pleasure was, and I'm quoting this person who's talking about the slave owner, his greatest pleasure was listening to the sweet song of his slaves being flogged. And so this was the cultural context in which Jesus talked about his disciples being set free. Now, the idea of being set free from, sla from slavery wasn't foreign to them. In fact, that was the whole idea behind redemption. 
redemption, a concept that they were very uh, familiar with. You see, the word redemption meant to purchase by paying a price. To purchase by paying a price. And uh, that was a concept that everyone in the first century Greco-Roman world understood very well. It's estimated that there were roughly 60 million slaves in the first century Roman Empire. And they were constantly being redeemed. In the center of every major city stood the Agora, the marketplace. And this was the main place where slaves were bought and sold. And uh, thus, one of the Greek words for the act of redemption, which was the purchasing of a slave, is agorazo, from the Greek word agora, marketplace. I mean, the, the, the name of the marketplace became synonymous with buying slaves, because that's where it all took place for the most part. There was a second word they understood back then for redemption, and uh, they would have readily uh, understood it if it had been presented to them. The word was exagorazo. And this is a Greek word that means the act of purchasing or redeeming never to return. Now, oftentimes a man would redeem or buy a slave to use for the cultivating and planting of his fields or for the harvesting of his crops. But when that work was over, you know, you hired helpers or slaves to plant your crops and then to harvest your crops uh, but when those jobs were done, then the owner would bring the slave back to the marketplace to, uh, to be sold again. Well, ex was the antithesis of this practice uh, in that it spoke of a man who redeemed a slave, and uh, that slave would become his possession for the rest of his life. He wouldn't take him back to the marketplace to sell him. He would remain that man's slave until the slave died. But there was a third Greek word which is really important to us in our understanding of redemption. And that was the word apolytrosis. Now apolytrosis speaks of a man going into the agora to purchase a slave for the purpose of setting that slave free never to be a slave again. That was rare but not unheard of. Especially if a man couldn't pay his debt and had to be sold into slavery to pay the debt that he owed somebody if he had a wealthy relative who heard about his plight, the relative could step forward and redeem the man and set him free. But most people back then didn't have the money to do that. So this was a rare thing, but not unheard of. However, when Jesus, along with the writers of the New Testament, talked about redemption, they weren't talking about being set free physically from slavery. Okay, I mean, they weren't talking about that about a person being set free physically from slavery as sanctioned by the Roman Empire, they had a different slavery in mind. When they talked about being redeemed, it was in reference to being set free from the bondage of spiritual slavery to sin and the devil. And guys, this was the context in which Peter and Paul used it in their writings. I'll just give you a, a one quote from each. In 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and 9, verses 18 and 19, Peter said, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by the tradition of, tradition of your fathers, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Paul said in Colossians 1, verse 14, in whom, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. 
When Paul talked about our redemption through Christ in Colossians 1 verse 14, he used the Greek word apolytrosis, which speaks of Jesus' blood setting us totally and completely free, never to be a slave of sin and Satan again. You have to understand, when God first created mankind, which at that time was just consisted of one man, one woman, Adam and Eve, when God originally created mankind, they were made perfect by him. Sin was obviously not an issue. And being perfect, they enjoyed beautiful and broken fellowship with God every day. God originally created man to be free, but still under his authority. Kind of like a soldier is a free man, not a slave, but he's still under the authority of a commanding officer. That was kind of the idea back then. And at that time, God gave Adam and Eve, mankind, the ownership of the earth. He told them um, to, uh, you know, to uh, watch over it, tend it, take care of it. And God said it would produce everything you need to, to live and flourish. So God gave to mankind the uh, ownership of the earth, you might say. And uh, it was theirs, mankind's, to watch over it take care of it, and God said it would always produce what you needed to, uh, to live and to flourish upon it. Well, God eventually put Adam and Eve into a beautiful garden, as we know, the Garden of Eden, which contained, you know, I don't know how big the Garden of Eden was, we don't really know, it might have been huge, and it might have contained thousands, literally thousands and thousands of fruit-bearing trees. God told them they could eat the fruit of any of the trees in the garden, except they couldn't eat the fruit from the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For God says, the day that you eat the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. Well, I don't know how long it took Adam and Eve to disobey that uh, command. I don't know if it was a couple minutes later. I, you know, I kind of imagine just knowing mankind. You know, God says, okay, you can eat of any of the trees. You, look at them all. You can eat anything you want. You just go ahead and, and chow down, but you can't eat the fruit. You can't eat the fruit of one tree in the garden. Where is that one? I can just imagine, you know, right, you know, and they're drawn to it, right? So I don't know, it might have been a half hour later, I don't know, you know, some guy at first service said he thought it was maybe years and years and years. I, I doubt that, but who knows, okay, before they ate the forbidden fruit. Uh, but anyways, they eventually went ahead and disobeyed God, and when they, did, when they did, sin entered into their soul, and they fell from perfection. And even though God had warned them, that if they ate the forbidden fruit, they would surely die. They didn't die physically, at least not immediately, but they did die spiritually. Their spirit died instantly. And when that happened, their communion, their connection with God was broken. And since God is the source of life, we learn this quite a bit in the first part of John's gospel. Since God is the source of life, when they were disconnected from God, they began to grow old and would eventually die. Before the fall of man, there was no sickness and no death. We know that. Both sickness and death entered the world at the time of the fall through man's sin. You can check out Romans 5, verse 12. Sin set in motion entropy. And in particular, the second law of thermodynamics, which says that everything is moving from order to disorder, from integration to disintegration. In other words, everything is wearing out, growing old, uh, rusting, decaying, going from life to death. That was all the result of sin. 
In fact, when God warned Adam and Eve that if they ate the forbidden fruit, they would surely die, the Hebrew is dying, you will surely die. In other words, they would no longer live forever as God had originally intended, but now they would slowly age until they died. And that's the plight all of us find ourselves in. We're no sooner born and we grow. We grow up, but then we finally grow old and we die. That's all because of sin. But listen, Adamson didn't just bring death into his life, as we just said. It impacted all of his descendants as well. Paul the, Paul the Apostle stated in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, Adam's sin caused all of his descendants to die. In Adam, we all die. The Bible is clear. Death didn't, wasn't in the world until Adam sinned. But that's not all that happened when Adam sinned. At that moment, and some people in first service questioned this, and that's fine, okay? There are different places in the Bible that bear this out. But when God created Adam and Eve, at one point he gave them ownership of the world, okay? It's yours, be fruitful, multiply, tend it, take care of it. It'll produce everything you need to live. But here's something interesting. The Bible says in Romans 6, whoever you give yourselves over as a, as a servant to obey, you become the slave of that thing. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed God and obeyed the devil, they didn't realize all that was going to be involved in that little transaction. And it was a transaction. Because what happened was, by disobeying God, they broke fellowship with him by turning towards the devil and obeying what he had tempted them to do, the devil became man's new master and the earth's new owner. The earth, the title deed to the earth, if you will, was transferred over to the devil. And the, and the devil now had authority over the family of Adam. He became our master. And the way he would control us was now through our fallen sin nature that happened when man fell. If you want a classic passage on that subject, to this week reread Romans 7, verses 15 to 25. You see the struggle Paul talks about. How that once you give your heart to Christ, you're born again. You have the Spirit of God in you now. And yet the old fallen nature doesn't go away, does it? You have a new nature. Peter says it's the divine nature. God lives in us. But the old nature doesn't go away. And this sets up this war, this conflict that Paul talked about in Galatians 5. And he lamented over in Romans 7. The spirit and the, the, the devil and the, you know, the, the devil working through our fallen nature, wrestling with the, the, the new nature and so on. Paul said, you know, I love the commandments of God. I want to do God's will. But I find another power working within me that's trying to pull me away from doing what God wants me to do to do what the flesh wants. And I struggle all the time with this. It's a constant battle. The things I want to do, I don't always do. The things I don't want to do, those things I often do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? He answers his own question. I thank God it's my Lord Jesus Christ. We'll study that more next week, okay? Freedom, victory. But Paul talked about how the devil will use the fallen. Of course, if you're an unbeliever, you don't have a new nature. So there's no struggle. 
You're like a dead fish floating downstream, as Paul talked about in Ephesians 2, right? We're just floating down with the course of this world. The devil's just, you know, got us in his, you know, we're just floating along with, with whatever he wanted. We didn't fight the flesh. We celebrated the flesh. We were our own person. We were independent. We did whatever we wanted to do. Those goofy Christians, they can't go out and party. They can't go out and have sex anytime they want. They can't go out and get cirrhosis or an STD. Right, exactly. See, this is, this is how the natural man thinks. He thinks it's so cool to be able to do whatever he wants. And God says, no, it's not only is it not cool, it's deadly. And I'm trying to keep you from killing yourself. Anyways. But some would argue, with the, a couple people said after first service, I mean, this idea of the devil owning the earth now, I've never really heard that before. I'm open to it, but I've never really thought about it. We'll turn to Luke 4. There's other places we can look at, but I'm just going to give you a flavor for where I'm going with this. Now, of course, the context is the devil has taken Jesus out into the wilderness, and he is tempting him for 40 days, 40 nights, trying to get the Lord Jesus to, uh, to um, sin against his father and obey the devil. Same thing the devil did with Adam and Eve in the garden. Okay, And so at one point in verse 5, the devil took him up to a high mountain, it says, and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And listen to what Satan said to Jesus. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please, and I will give it all to you if you will worship me. But Jesus replied, the scriptures say you must worship the Lord, and him only shall you serve. Notice that Jesus didn't dispute Satan's claim to be the rightful owner of the earth and all of its kingdoms. He didn't say, Satan, you big fat liar, you don't own the world, you know. He didn't argue with it because he knew the devil had received ownership from Adam and Eve. God gave it to Adam and Eve, and they turned it over to the devil, who became the God of this world. What do you think that means? He is the God of this world because he controls, basically owns the world. And Jesus didn't dispute that. And... Um, I want you to further notice. Somebody else took me to task on this point. So it was a good uh, between the services. Uh, no, that's good. I mean, you know, I, I don't mind being challenged on this, and I'm not saying I'm right in all these. I'm just telling you what I feel is true, and you can run with it if you like. But I want you to notice something interesting. Notice that Satan had to tempt Jesus. And we're talking about this in the wilderness, uh, Luke 4. Notice that Satan had to tempt Jesus. And the idea was to tempt him into disobeying his father, obeying the devil, and ultimately worshiping the devil. Okay, that was the temptation. But to do that, the devil had to come to Jesus directly, didn't he? He had to come to him directly, openly. Why did he do that? Because Jesus didn't have a sin nature he could work from within to tempt him through. Remember I said when Adam and Eve obeyed the devil, not only did they turn the earth over to him, they sold themselves into slavery to the devil who became man's new master. And how does Satan control us from within? Through our fallen nature. 
But Jesus was virgin born. His father was not Adam. His father was God the Father. Therefore, he didn't have a sin nature for Satan to use from within to tempt him. The devil had to come from without to tempt Christ. Interesting little side point. When he tempted Adam and Eve, how did he do it? Directly, didn't he? Oh, he took the form of a serpent, but he came to them directly, openly. Because they didn't have a sin nature at this point either for him to manipulate and work through. But, but Satan basically said to the Lord, look, I know why you've come. You've come to die in the cross. You don't think Satan knows the gospel? You've come to die in the cross to, to take the world back from me. I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. You can have the whole world, all of its kingdoms. You've come to rule. I'll let you rule. You don't have to go to the cross. He's always trying to get us to bypass the cross for immediate gratification. Always. Only stipulation I have, Jesus, is if you, if you, that, that you disobey your Father, start obeying me, worship me, and you can have all, the whole world. And Jesus said, get behind me. That's not happening, Satan. Well, eventually, Jesus went to the cross to apolotrosis to redeem us through his blood, setting us totally and completely free. Never again to be the slaves of Satan and sin. You know, the New Testament has a lot to say about our redemption through Christ. And, and we don't often think about all the implications. It's a very important subject. That we're talking about slavery right now, so let's talk about it briefly. We could spend weeks. I'm being very concise, and for me, that's not easy. Okay? <laughs> I don't do concise well. All right? I do, you know, 10-part series. That's me. Uh, so I'm really condensing this. I'm exercising a lot of self-control. Um, but the New Testament has a lot to say about the redemption uh, of Christ on our behalf and what that means. Of course, in Romans chapter 8, you don't have to turn here, but Paul talks about how that we've been redeemed uh, through Christ. Internally, we're, we're saved, we're redeemed. But this body that my spirit lives in is not redeemed yet. This body is still subject to death. It's going to wear out, going to grow old. It's going to die, Okay. And uh, we're waiting for the day when we have redemption of our bodies. That will be the last area of redemption the Lord will work in our lives. And that will happen at the time of the rapture when we will get our glorified bodies. And Paul says, you know, we're, we're longing for that day. We're all wearing out. We're all, you know, growing old and aches and pains and different things, okay? But the day is coming when we're going to be redeemed from these physical bodies and we'll have a glorified new body. We'll never wear out, never grow old, never die, of course. That's a, we're waiting for that, right? But not only that, Paul goes on in Romans 8 to, personas, to personify the creation and, and like the creation is talking. And Paul says the creation also is longing for the redemption of itself, okay? It longs for the redemption of the, of the sons of God because that's when the creation is going to be redeemed as well. And this world, this universe, which was subject to the fall and the corruption of sin, when Adam blew it, it affected a lot. Not just him or Eve or their descendants, but the earth and the entire universe. And Paul said there's coming a day when the whole universe is going to be redeemed, including the earth, and recreated, beautiful, pristine, and completely uncorrupted by sin. We're waiting for that day. But again, guys, the word redemption when used of our redemption through Christ means 
to purchase out of slavery, never to be a slave again. In other words, to be free. To be free. This means that we are free. The Bible talks about our freedom in Christ and what his redemption has actually purchased us in the way of freedom. In Galatians 5.1, we read that we are now free from the law. He's redeemed us out of that system. In Romans 6, Paul spends a lot of time talking about how we are now free from the slavery to our sinful fallen nature through what Christ did. And other places talk about how we are free from the power of Satan and the world, which he uses to tempt us and get us to uh, submit to his control. I'll read you a couple of these on that subject. Galatians 1 verse 4, Paul said, Jesus gave his life for our sins just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us from this evil world in which we live. And of course, that rescue starts internally as we are freed from the pull or the power of our fallen nature through Christ. And someday will happen outwardly when Jesus returns to establish a kingdom free of evil. And we're looking forward to that day. But in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, Paul also said, For Jesus has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son, Jesus, who purchased our freedom. That's redemption, folks. Redemption. And forgave our sins. Guys, we are now free. We were in bondage to the... We were his slaves, the devil. But the whole point of Christianity is for us to be made free from the power of sin, death, and the devil. And so one of the things we need to realize is that as Christians we are free. We are no longer uh, belonging to a family of slaves, the family of Adam. We have now been redeemed into the family of God and have become heirs to all that our Father owns. That's how Paul ended Romans 8, or in the middle of the chapter. But here's where things take an interesting turn. When you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you were set free. The truth shall make you free. But here's what instantly happened. Once Jesus set us free, we turned around and gave ourselves back to him as his slaves. The term is called being a bond slave or becoming a bond slave. You know what a bond slave was? A bond slave was a free man who heard about a master who was so good to his slaves. He went to that man and said, I have heard you are the most incredible master I've ever heard of. And I want to become your slave for the rest of my life. A free man volunteering to become a slave of another man. God even had a process for this in the Old Testament. And so what they would do was, if a man offered himself as the bond slave to another man, that owner would take this man to the doorpost of his house and put his head up against, or his ear up against the doorpost, take an awl, and he would drive it through his ear 
and drive it into the doorpost of the house, symbolically pinning himself, pinning that man to his house. Of course, he would take the all out. He wouldn't want to leave the guy pinned to the house there. He wouldn't get much work done for them. But, you know, he'd take the all out, and then he would put a gold earring in the man's ear. Wherever that slave went, when people saw the gold earring, they knew you had been a free man who had voluntarily placed yourself into slavery to another man. And they would have gone, they would have just been, wow. Here's a guy who voluntarily put himself into slavery. His master must be quite a guy. And that was a testimony wherever you went. That your master was so incredible, you voluntarily wanted to be his slave. Well, don't you know, that was such an incredible thought to the apostles. They all began their epistles with, uh, with uh, you know, Paul, a bondservant of Christ. Uh, Jude, a bondslave of Christ. James, a bondservant of Christ. That, they picked up on that. They saw themselves as having been set free from sin and Satan and immediately putting themselves into slavery to Jesus Christ. Guys, we were once created free. Free. But Adam, made free, acted independently, used his freedom to act independently from God, disobeyed God, thought he knew better than God what was best for his life, as a lot of people do these days. And they're not all unbelievers, by the way. And so Adam acted independently of God, ate the forbidden fruit, brought sin and death into the world. But now through redemption, he would become a slave. All of his descendants would become slaves of a new master. The idea is that God is teaching us. When I made man free, he exercised his freedom to disobey me. When man was his own master and thought he knew what was best for his life, he went ahead and, and, and made decisions that destroyed him. So now here's what it is in the new covenant. I've sent my son to die for you. And if you want to know true freedom, this is the paradox of the Christian life. If you want to know true freedom, you got to become a slave. A slave to Jesus Christ. Man wants his own master? Fell. Satan took control. Satan was man's master. All of our master for many years. And what did Jesus do when we received him? He set us free. And then we turned around and said, Lord, I don't want to be free. I want to be in bondage to you. I want you to be my master. Remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20? You were bought with an incredible price. You were redeemed with an incredible price, the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which now belong to him. Guys, most people don't know this. They don't realize this. They don't realize that the goal of life, listen to me very carefully, the goal of life isn't finding Freedom. That's not the, the goal of life isn't to find freedom. The goal of life is to find the right master. Paul said in Romans 
But now having been set free from sin and having become, listen, slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. That's why I've called this little mini-series True Freedom. True Freedom. Because true freedom, not what people think when they hear that title, true freedom is becoming a slave to the right master, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Guys, and I know most of you know this, I'm just going to throw it out because there are many Christians who don't seem to realize this. The church consists of slaves who are subject to the control of their master and king, Jesus Christ. Christianity isn't a democracy. As some like to think of it, uh, we don't get to vote on matters of faith and practice in the church, okay? The church is not a democracy. It's a benevolent dictatorship. It's a monarchy, okay? And Christ is its sovereign king. This is what it means to be a Christian, that we live in absolute subjection to our king and master, without which, without doing so, we can't even call ourselves his people his subjects. The fact that we call him master, our king, implies we are under his authority. And that's a very important concept. Jesus said, no one can be my disciple without denying themselves and taking up their cross and following me. In other words, he is now in charge and we follow him. He doesn't Follow behind us, you know, blessing where we want to go and all the things we want to do. That's, how the, that's the concept many people have of Jesus Christ, that he's the servant and they're the master. Where are they getting that from? From a lot of the jokers on TV who basically are telling people all the time, if you know the right secret words, if you, if you, if you make the right positive confessions, well, as Hagen said, you can write your own ticket with God. In other words, you become the master and Jesus becomes the servant. That's perverted. That's demonic. That's not biblical Christianity. Look, we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Our life, as we have known it and lived it, listen to me, is over. That, that's a foreign concept to a lot of people today who have been taught, when I accept Christ, I'm going to have the biggest house in the town. I'm going to have the nicest cars. I'm going to, you know, my, my business will prosper beyond, I'll, I'll, I'll bring in millions. It's all about what Jesus is going to do for them. This is a foreign concept to them, that when they receive Christ as their Savior, their life as they had known it and lived it was over, we are now the slaves of Christ. I mean, Jesus doesn't come alongside of us to help us fulfill our dreams and bless what we want to do. Uh, like some people think, you know, Jesus comes alongside them every day and says, okay, what do you want me to do for you today? You know, how should I bless you today? You know, this is the concept. He doesn't come alongside us to fulfill all our dreams. He takes over. There's a lot of people that go to church that don't realize that. I'm not saying they're all Christians, but there's a lot of folks who go to church and call Jesus Lord who don't understand that concept. 
And Jesus called them out once in a while. Uh, he called them out in Luke chapter 6, verses four, uh, verse 46. He said to a group of would-be disciples one day, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet don't do the things that I tell you? That, that's a contradiction. Because the word Lord is not a name, it's a title for the person who owns you. Look, the word Lord in the Greek is the word kurios, and it means one who has the power, ownership, and absolute right to command. The word is used 747 times in the New Testament and is synonymous with another word, master. Jesus is to be our only master and Lord in the Christian life. The corresponding word that is often linked when you see the word Lord, it shows up somewhere in that area of that passage, is another Greek word, doulos. Wherever you see the Greek word kurios, Lord, you're going to see the word, Greek word doulos not far from it. And one of the big reasons that Christians today don't get it when it comes to having a proper understanding of their relationship to, relationship to Jesus is because they don't have a proper understanding of the word doulos. Guys, doulos only means one thing in Greek, slave. It has always meant slave, and it, and it only means slave. There are six or seven words in the Greek for servant, which is a different concept from doulos. A servant is someone who works for another. A slave is someone who is owned by another. A servant is an employee of another. A slave is the property of another. And the New Testament identifies Christians, us, as douloi, plural, servants, 150 times. As we said earlier, a slave in, the New, in New Testament times was bought and owned. He had no legal rights and could not refuse any of his master's commands. He was totally dependent on his master for protection and provision and was rewarded or punished as pleased his master. But slavery is offensive to us. We don't like it. We associate it with evil. Therefore, the translators of the New Testament, as far back as 1560, with the Geneva Bible, decided, because slave is harsh, they wanted to soften the uh, idea of doulos, and so they translated the word, uh, and almost every New Testament translation since has picked up on what they did. They translated the word doulos, slave, as the word servant or bondservant instead of slave. The word bondservant doesn't even appear in the Greek. It's made up, not even a Greek word. Look, if you tell me, the New Testament says that I am a, the slave of a master who owns me and whose commands I have no choice but to obey, now I start to get it. However, if you tell me, I'm the servant of Christ. That could imply I, I'm an employee. And that puts me in a negotiating position. And folks, that makes a huge difference. Just think about that. Think about the difference between understanding yourself as the slave of Christ and then a servant of Christ, which could imply he's my boss. I've heard Christians say that. Well, Jesus is my boss, man. Well, you better read your Bible some more. But you got that wrong. 
Jesus is my co-pilot. No. You just want to be your co-pilot? Get out of the driver's seat. Go lock yourself in the trunk. Let him get over there. Stop trying to think, you know, Jesus is there to kind of help me. No. No, you're there to live for him. We have all these warped concepts floating around out there, right? You know, I mean, it's a huge difference in my understanding of my relationship with Jesus to think of myself as his slave as opposed to his servant. Look, don't misunderstand me. All slaves back then were servants, but not all servants were slaves. You had paid servants. They weren't slaves. As a slave of Christ, I am his servant, no doubt about it, but I am not his employee. If I understand myself to be the slave of Christ, a slave who has no rights, no power, no freedom to make my own decisions, do my own will, guess what I have? I have biblical New Testament Christianity. However, if I see myself as a servant of Christ, if I see myself as a servant of Christ who maybe is my boss, it completely messes up and confuses some of the things that Jesus said. Not the least of which when he said, "A man, uh, no man can serve two masters. Now think about that, okay? If master means boss, that doesn't make sense because a lot of people have more than, more than a, one boss over them at work, right? Probably everybody in this room has more than one boss over them where you work. Some people work two jobs, so they have two bosses. So if we're interpreting, you know, master to mean boss, which implies I'm an employee, that doesn't make any sense. No man can serve two bosses. Well, sure they can. But if you understand master to mean Excuse me, if you understand master to mean owner, owner, and that you are a slave, well, no man can be a slave of two people at the same time. You can't be owned by two people at the same time. And that's what Jesus was saying. And guys, therefore, when Jesus is truly your master, and if he is, you are owned exclusively by him. He doesn't share with anybody else. Which means then, if he's truly your master, you give up all your independence, all your autonomy. You no longer call the shots. And guys, that in and of itself is enough to bring victory into our lives as Christians. Think about that. You know, I was telling first service, you have a lot of people because they want to sell you studies that make... Simple concepts, very difficult. Why? Because you can't make money off of a one or two statement principle. You got to turn it into a 12 part series. The, you know, the seven keys or the five principles or, or, or the 12 laws of victory. Send me $49.95, I'll send you. Uh, you know, Mike, you, you learn these principles and you say these words just the right way, confessing your victory, you'll be victorious. Let me just simplify, because I'm not that deep. I'm just a simple person, okay? The degree to which you allow Jesus to control every area of your life will be the degree to which you experience victory. Guys, and I, I said this for service. The Christian life isn't hard to understand. I'm not saying it's easy to live. I'm just saying it's not hard to understand. The idea is, for all the years before we got saved, we were our own masters. 
we did our own thing, right? And often, and many of us paid a, a severe price. But when we got saved, we gave Jesus control. Now, let me just say this. The flesh doesn't go quietly into the night. The flesh doesn't give up that easy. It kicks and stream, screams and fights, and you can read Galatians 5 again. How Paul said the flesh is warring against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh, and so on and so on. Things I, you know, so I, I don't always do the things I want to do. The whole Christian life is, in a nutshell, learning how to let go more and more every day to give Jesus control. Because the more you do that, the more you'll have victory. The more you'll be all that God wants you to be. You'll, you'll you know, enjoy all the blessings, all the wonderful things. It's all about letting go and stop trying to control things. We have to learn to die to self. That's what he meant by taking up our cross, following him. We've got to learn how to die to self because until we do, we'll never know victory. And so we compensate then. How? Well, I'm going to fight. I'm going to try real hard. Well, you know, you're, you're missing the point. Victory is not you know, inherent in how hard you try. It's how much you die. That's where the victory comes from. Let me just say, if we were to do everything the Lord Jesus commanded us, if we only went to places where he was glorified, if we only filled our minds with his word, if we only busied ourselves with his work, well, there's no way sin or Satan or the flesh would be able to control us. I just want to end with a quote from that great theologian, Bob Dylan. Wasn't he? thought he was a theologian. Could be wrong. All right. Remember? He said, you got to serve somebody. Got to serve somebody. Well, that's really true. Joshua said that basically in Joshua chapter 24. Everyone's serving somebody. His point was, if you're going to have to serve somebody, you might as well serve the Lord, God Almighty. Serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you guys do what you want to do. You know, if you want to serve the gods uh, that you're, that you're the, the folks on this side of the river, the, Amorites, the gods of the Amorites, you go ahead. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And so, guys, our first main point in this little mini-series we've entitled True Freedom has been understanding slavery. But listen, you can understand slavery and still not experience victory. And that's what we're going to do next week. Because there are some things. I'm not against the five principles for victory, if there's five principles in the word that talk about things we need to do to have victory. And there are some things we can, we're going to look at, some guidelines. And so come on back next week, and uh, we will, by God's grace, um, pick it up and uh, look at understanding what's involved in our victory. And again, it's our birthright. God, help us. That we don't enjoy our birthright to be more than conquerors, right? That we're still battling with sin, in bondage. It's a, tra a tragedy, and in some ways a travesty. So come on back. We'll look at that subject next week. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your goodness and grace. 
We thank you, Lord, that you have made available to us through our relationship with Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit everything we need for life and victory and power and effectiveness, everything we need to be more than conquerors over the flesh. But, Lord, we need to understand the principles you've laid out in your word that we might learn these things and by your grace apply them, that we might walk in that victory. It's ours. We just don't always live it or enjoy it. Give us grace, Lord. Father, bless this study next week. For your glory, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.